In September, we published a proposals for nine pilot projects that we think the United States should embark upon in order to test out some of the opportunities and challenges of a U.S. central bank digital currency. And over the last few months, we've worked hard to lead up to our announcement earlier this week that we, with funding by Accenture, are going to actually conduct several of those pilot projects to take a look at what it tells us about the opportunities, as they say, and the challenges of a U.S. central bank digital currency. Welcome to Opinionated with Ben Schiller. Ben is a features editor at Coindesk. He's a seasoned business journalist, and he'll be talking with some of the most fascinating contributors to Coindesk Daily Opinion section. Today's show is sponsored by Interpop and the Sun Exchange. Hi, everybody. My name is Ben Schiller. This is Opinionated. Co-hosting the show today are Anna Bedikova and Danny Nelson, both writers here at Coindesk. Hi, guys. Hello. Hello. Today, we're going to be talking about a very important topic, that's central bank digital currencies or CBDCs. And these are things that you're going to be hearing a lot more about in the years ahead as central banks think about cryptocurrency and digital currency and think about new ways to issue money in new programmable forms. There are a number of important projects out there already, notably in the Bahamas, in Cambodia, and particularly in China. And the big question for the United States is how we're going to respond here by launching our own digital dollar initiative. And there are a lot of people out there, including Michael Casey from Coindesk, who think this is a big strategic issue for the United States, that China's digital one in particular could cause great disruption in the financial system and the US's place in that system. So let's unpack those issues with two very well-placed people, former CFTC chairman, Chris Giancarlo, and David Treat, who is Senior Managing Director at Accenture. And they are both part of the Digital Dollar Foundation, which works to build awareness of digital dollars in the policymaking process. Welcome, Chris. Welcome, David. Great to be with you, Ben. Thanks so much. So this week, you appeared on Coindesk TV to announce a series of pilot projects for a U.S. digital dollar. Chris, do you want to talk about what you're hoping to learn from those projects and why they're important? Absolutely, Ben. And maybe for your listeners, I might just take you on a quick journey of the digital dollar project so your listeners can understand where we've come from on this. And it really goes back 18 months to October of 2019. Daniel Gorfine and I, another one of the principals in the Digital Dollar Project, uh, did an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal entitled, If the U.S. Can Send a Man to the Moon, It Could Send the Dollar into Cyberspace. And our argument was that the time had come to begin exploring a central bank digital currency based upon the U.S. dollar. Um, not long after, David Treat and I got into a great conversation. We were actually out in Singapore for the FinTech Festival and decided to team up and join forces. And we formed the Digital Dollar Foundation um, and then partnered with Accenture in what we call the Digital Dollar Project. And the goal of the project is just as you said to begin to uh, advocate for the further detailed exploration of a US-based central bank digital currency or what we call a digital dollar. And we're very pleased to see that name has stuck. In April of, of 2020, we convened a really terrific group of a little bit about three dozen advisory board members across the political and ideological and social spectrum with different professional backgrounds from central banking to commercial banking to folks that are advocates for privacy rights and and the underbanked and traditionally financially excluded populations. And with our advisory board in May of 2020, we published a white paper, which is on our website at digitaldollarproject.org, digitaldollarproject.org. 
And the white paper lays out what we call a champion model for a U.S. central bank digital currency. It was informed by that great advisory board, but also by Accenture's work around the globe, actually working on more G20 uh, central bank digital currency projects than virtually any other firm. So we had that broad global perspective as well as that domestic U.S. perspective. And that led to a series of hearings before the House and Senate last summer, where I had the honor to testify on behalf of the project and talk about our champion model for a U.S. digital dollar. But coming out of a colloquy I had with Senator Kennedy and the Senate Banking Committee, in September, we published a proposals for nine pilot projects that we think the United States should embark upon in order to test out some of the opportunities and challenges of a U.S. central bank digital currency. And over the last few months, we've worked hard to lead up to our announcement uh, earlier this week that we, with funding by Accenture, are going to actually conduct several of those pilot projects uh, to take a look at what it tells us about the opportunities, as they say, and the challenges of a U.S. central bank digital currency. And our purpose is to be a public service. Everything that comes out of those pilot projects, we will make public. We will publish all the data on our website. It will be there to be available to academics, to the official sector, certainly to policymakers on Capitol Hill, but the Federal Reserve and Treasury as well. And it's all part of trying to move the dialogue forward as to the opportunities. And as I say, the challenges, we're not naive about this. We know this is a big undertaking. But, you know, whenever the United States has done big undertakings, whether it was exploration of outer space or whether it was exploration of cyberspace, those were always uh, loose cooperations between the private sector and the public sector. As we know, the Internet was originally begun by work of funding out of the Department of Defense and DARPA, but it was really embraced by the private sector and, and accelerated. And we view the U.S.'s experimentation of a digital dollar as very much uh, needing both private sector and public sector involvement. Just to kind of very quickly define terms here for people who don't understand what a CBDC is. I mean, you know, we already have digital money already. So how is a CBDC different from that? Yeah, maybe I'll take that one. So we have, I'm going to start super philosophical and then get specific. If I look at the business environments and ecosystems that we've been all working within and, and modernizing over the past decades, we've moved from paper to electronic. But now we're moving from electronic to, I think, a better definition of digital or tokenized. And the difference there is, yes, we've got money in electronic context, but by and large, all we did, and I'm complicit in this in my 25-year career, we basically digitized the analog processes. In effect, if you look at, at the old paper-based processes, and if I just take you know, you know, capital markets, right, buying and selling of stocks, in effect, when we adopted the use of computers and databases, we maintained the same fundamental process of redundant siloed data structures and messaging and reconciliation. Uh, just instead of wheelbarrowing paper around, we were pushing the same information through wires in the form of electronic messages and maintain this notion of an accounts-based infrastructure. For me to get anything done in our current financial system, I've got to send a message authorizing my bank on my behalf to work with another bank on the counterparty's behalf, on behalf of them, and the four of us are going to message back and forth and reconcile until it gets done. And so we're trying to introduce that language of having moved from paper to electronic and now from electronic to tokenized because that notion of tokenization, you know, through this wave of tech innovation, having an effective digital bearer instrument that the cryptocurrency wave you know, started for us uh, in 2008, 2009, 
having that unique digital object that has provable ownership, has its provenance intact, has the ability to have the certainty of I hold it and you don't, and I pass it to you now and you hold it and I don't, then dramatically simplifies not just our financial systems, but the entire business ecosystem at large. I think we've got the category of digital currency and digital assets. Within that overall category, I think we have cryptocurrencies, which have for many, I think we've landed on that they're an asset, not as much of a currency. Then we have stable coins, and then we have central bank digital currency. The characteristics of all three are underpinned by that same technology that supports tokenization, that unique digital bearer instrument. The difference is in its in who issues it and the nature of who operates the system around it and the expectations around how it performs. So a central bank digital currency, by definition, is issued by the central bank and enjoys the full faith and credit of the government you know, and central bank that issues it. And there's no question as to its value. In a US context, if I'm holding a paper dollar in my wallet, or there's a dollar in my savings account in my bank, or there's a digital CBDC token of a US dollar in my digital wallet on my phone, it is all always equal to a dollar. There's no question about it. And that full faith and credit construct of it being backed as a fiat currency then you know, enables it to really act like a currency. You know, Ben, when Dave rightly says that the existing financial system, yes, it's digital, it's, it's basically digitizing the old system. I would liken it to digital magnetic tape was the last stage of analog presentation of music. But that was before the internet came into music and created what we have today with MP3 files being able to send anywhere in the world in a, in a nanosecond. And so what has not yet happened to money is the internet with its full decentralization power, and then also the blockchain. When we're talking about central bank digital currency or even uh, cryptocurrency, it's the impact of the internet on money doing to money what it's already done to music, what it's done to photography, what it's done to uh, retail, what it's done to information. And that wave continues, and, and the next wave is now interfacing with money and dramatically changing society's relationship with money as a result. Meet Interpop, a super team redefining the future of NFTs and fandom. From comics and trading card games to digital collectibles and everything in between, they are building the architecture of an entirely new landscape of fandom using technology built on the Tezos blockchain to drive their vision. Visit hellointerpop.io to learn more. That's hellointerpop.io to learn more. With the Sun Exchange, you can easily earn Bitcoin while making a positive impact. Visit thesunexchange.com slash coindesk to buy solar cells and automatically lease them to power businesses, schools, and other organizations in sunny emerging markets. You'll earn Bitcoin for 20 years from the clean energy you generate while offsetting your carbon footprint. Get a free solar cell with your first purchase at thesunexchange.com slash coindesk. That's thesunexchange.com slash coindesk. Talk about this combination of stable coins, the, the private sector and the CBDC, on the other hand. Is that sort of philosophically different from how other countries are approaching this, say, say China, which seem to have a much more statist sort of view of things? So every country, one of the important aspects of a central bank digital currency is it will be unique to every country. There may be countries that are more similar than each other than others. A country's currency has always been, in some respects, a projection of the country's uh, values, laws, societal norms, et cetera. 
with enormous respect for what an individual country values for themselves, yes, we will see wild differences. And, you know, consistent with China's laws and culture and constructs for their business ecosystems, that the degree of, um, of central government visibility into transactions and the potential, you know, control and, and monitoring that goes along with that, I think is naturally diametrically opposed in some respects to you know, what we will expect and will be designing and, and pushing for in a U.S. context, where the privacy of transactions has always been part of our system. Talking about the purpose of CBDCs, you mentioned that there are, there are cryptocurrencies that are stable coins that might be you know, fully regulated and audited and backed by U.S. dollars. So my question probably has two parts. First of all, if we already have these stable coins that are, might be well-regulated and backed and checked, why would we need another stable coin that is issued by the Fed that will be by design probably more permissioned and closed and controlled, maybe even not run on a public blockchain, unlike the current stable coins that run on Ethereum, or whatever else. Uh, on the other hand, we have all these world, you know, fiat transactions that are controlled by the U.S. government on the level that they are now, and people are using different financial instruments. They send payments to each other. So, if those instruments don't work really well, do we really need to just fine tune them so that they work better with the existing policies instead of inventing just a new kind of money that will have its own challenges and risks and problems to solve probably in the future. And maybe I can take a stab at that. So first of all, I want to make very clear for your listeners, we at the Digital Dollar Project do not propose a US CBDC in exclusion to non-sovereign cryptocurrencies. We believe in letting a thousand flowers bloom. And so we're not calling for suppression or doing away, or we have no position on other cryptocurrencies. To really understand the role of a central bank digital currency compared to non-sovereign cryptocurrencies, whether they happen to have some tie to a sovereign currency, one needs to look at U.S. history. You know, throughout much of U.S. history, there was no greenback. The greenback only came into existence at the Civil War. There were private issuers of money, many of them, states, railroad companies, mining companies, issued currencies, many currencies, including foreign currencies, circulated in the United States. After the Civil War, uh, there was a national banking system created and the greenback was created, but still those private currencies existed. Banks issued their own currencies throughout the country. And we've had that experience of a sovereign sitting side by side with non-federal sovereign currencies. And it worked okay. But what people found was there was a large arbitrage and discount between the greenback that was enjoyed the full faith and credit of the central government and bank-issued currencies that only enjoyed the backing of that bank. And to the extent that bank was stable and sound, then that, that instrument was stable and sound. To the extent that bank was not stable and sound, and during different panics in the 1800s and going into the early 1900s, a lot of those instruments failed and people uh, lost their money as a result. The ubiquity of the dollar is actually something that's relatively recent in American history. And although it seems like a natural to us, it's not always the way it's worked. The future may be indeed one where we have non-sovereigns and sovereign currencies existing side by side. 
users of those non-sovereign currencies will have to look at the quality of that, you say, backed by the dollar. But what does that mean? Does that mean that the promoter of that currency actually puts money in an account? Well, who holds that account? What if the trustee of that account absconds with those dollars? What if they're not telling the truth? What if they're not really there? That will all have to be determined. And we, as I say, we take no view on that. But the basic difference is a central bank digital currency does enjoy the full faith and credit of the central bank and therefore of the economy of that nation state. And and traditionally, uh, instruments of the U.S. government are traditionally considered to have zero risk because if the U.S. government falls, it's considered to be the world has disintegrated into chaos. Now, whether that's a fair approach to the U.S. dollar or not will remain to be seen. But the reason why we think this is so important Because at the end of the day, again, if you look at history, national currencies and non-national currencies have always competed with each other. In human history, they've always competed. And then oftentimes, the ones that had the superior calling, the ones that were most in need, most desired, were the ones that were technologically advanced. The dollar is called the dollar because it was named after the currency that was considered the most technologically advanced, not the U.S. dollar the Spanish dollar. And the reason why the Spanish dollar in the 1600s and 1700s was the coin to have was because it was technologically superior to all the others. It was minted using new world silver, which was more consistently pure than old world silver, meaning it needed less alloy, but it was also more fungible. It was more consistent. One coin was more fungible with the next, but also is minted in such a way that it can be broken into eight equal pieces, known as pieces of eight, making it fractionable. And so as we think about digital currency, we're also thinking about a technological advantage over both accounts-based bank money and fiat money. It would be internet-based, it would be portable. And of course, there are a lot of issues as to what that blockchain looks like and who can write to the blockchain. But the goal here and the reason why we advocate for modernizing the dollar, it's because it's to maintain the dollar's role as one of the world's most desirable currencies, because not only does it have a stable economy, hopefully, hopefully that's true into the future, but it has the most technologically advanced elements to it. And that's why we call for digitization. I'm wondering how you feel about the privacy aspects of a CBDC. Because, you know, with cash, and you mentioned this in the white paper that was just released, privacy is just, you know, an inherent feature of an analog instrument. And when you bring this over to the digital world, there's this interplay of, well, we have this ability to see everything. But if we see everything, then no one will want to use the thing because they won't feel secure in it. So how do you balance those two clashing uh, realities in thinking about how a government and how a CBDC could achieve some privacy while maintaining some appeal. Danny, I'm going to take a first shot at this. Let's think about a world of emerging cyber currencies and central bank digital currencies. We know that China intends to use their central bank digital currency as a means of of societal surveillance and, and social credit systems and for the ability to move money around the globe clandestinely for client states. So it's vitally important, I believe, for Western democracies in the United States with long traditions of economic privacy protection. We have a Fourth Amendment that protects people's privacy from government uh, surveillance, and the Europeans have their GDPR, which protects their citizens from commercial exploitation of their data. So democracies take the issue of privacy quite strongly. We believe it's critically important as a design element that built into the U.S. central bank digital currency and digital dollar is economic privacy. 
Now, it should be properly balanced against legitimate and limited needs of law enforcement, as we do have with KYC AML. But beyond law enforcement, if we don't build in economic privacy, your wish to shop at Target as opposed to Amazon should be known to you and only you. And by using a central bank digital currency, you actually may be able to better protect that information than you do today with Zelle and Venmo and others that absolutely mine that data. And one of the arguments in favor of a central bank digital currency where privacy is properly built in is you may have better privacy rights than you will with a non-sovereign commercial currency, which becomes a means of gathering data by its commercial promoters. It's a great answer, Chris. I think the only thing I would expand upon is the clarification and the education that, again, we need to broadly do as a community around what the technology can actually do. There are wildly powerful things that we can configure with this suite of architectures specifically for privacy, the whole domain of privacy preserving compute and confidential compute, the ability to segregate data, you know, not just encrypt it, the ability to set the system's configuration to meet our social values and laws and regulations is all there in front of us. And so having an informed conversation around what the technology can do, juxtaposed against what we continue to value, and and as Chris alluded to, as a starting point, if we were to, to decide in a U.S. context that we want to continue to have that $10,000 marker for you know transactions under $10,000 being private and, and anonymous and reporting requirements for anything above that, if we can configure that system such that that data is not visible and adheres to that threshold. Talking about security and privacy, I take it, gentlemen, that your prerequisite, kind of your starting point is that the Federal Reserve, the government agency, is a better guardian of people's personal information, of their money spending history, and so on. But I think to some people, it might feel like a debatable thing. Is really the government the best guardian of our personal data? We know now that the US government, for one, has been subject to multiple attacks by hackers related to the nation states. So is it really safer to keep my payment history with the government than it would be with uh, some private entity of my choice? Definitionally. The security vulnerabilities of private enterprise are dwarfed from a security threat perspective, from the investment focus and capabilities that nation states can apply to their security infrastructure. That is not to say that, you know, it's of course continues to be vulnerable and we will always have the progress of attackers and defenders in terms of security capabilities. If you think about the balance sheet liability, continuing investment required and core constructs of what a proper holistic network security construct is, I'm far more comfortable with those that have built systemically important infrastructure over years and have protected, you know, massive secrets over years than private enterprise alone. To dig down into really how that might be implemented, one of my personal favorite uh, proposals in uh, ensuring some degree of privacy, and it's actually in a report that you guys cite in the most recent white paper, is out of the ECB, uh, they introduced this idea of anonymity vouchers. So instead of saying, okay, every transaction above 10,000 has to go through XYZ KYC checks, you get X amount of money or allocated a month as your privacy stipend. You don't get money, but you're allowed to use X amount of money a month in a completely anonymous way. I know you don't want to uh, throw anything out the window or prioritize any specific idea just yet, but I'd love to hear 
your take on introducing, you know, this idea of allowing people to spend, say, $2,000 a month, that might be a little high, uh, let's just say $2,000 a month in a completely anonymous way and having the rest of their digital money not necessarily safe uh, with those privacy protections. Yeah, maybe I can just jump in quickly. I, that shows you how when you get to a digital format, how creative you can be because you can design different things in. However, from a maximizing privacy point of view, I think the choice should be, is the activity illicit or not? If it is, there should be some sacrifice of privacy. If the activity is completely legal, then I don't think there should be a dollar amount of the privacy that one enjoys for a completely legal transaction. It could be a $10 million transaction. If it's a legal transaction, one should be able to do that with requisite privacy. And that may be a reason for using a sovereign currency with proper protections as opposed to a commercial one where that data you know, would be exploited. So I'm just wondering how urgent this challenge is for you. I mean, there's a sort of popular understanding out there that China is 10 or 12 years ahead of the US in this. And Jay Powell, the Fed chair, has been asked in congressional hearings many times, I think, you know, are we in a race with China? Are we behind? Do we need to catch up? I mean, how do you think about this? Do we have Six months, yeah. 12 months, five yeah. years, 10 years. Jay Powell is absolutely, or Federal Reserve Chairman, is absolutely right to reject the race analogy, race meaning the contest, to be first. It's not about who's first. It's about who is going to set the standards. One of the reasons why the internet is the way it is is because the U.S. used its leadership in the internet to bring to the internet democratic value, rights to privacy. What China looks to do is to use their leadership in CBDC to put forward the values that Dave talked about, I think, eloquently earlier in this broadcast, of state surveillance, of social credit, of clandestine movement of monies around the globe to fund activities. If the United States is absent at that leader's table, then those are the values that are going to be set as the core values of a global system of, of central bank digital currencies. The United States needs to be at that table to bring the leadership, as does the rest of the democratic West and democratic East. Democracies need to make sure that the values that got the dollar and the euro to where they are today are ingrained in the digital future of money. How long do we have? I mean, because China is already having those discussions with other nations uh, about standards. Uh, it's building its blockchain services network, which is presumably going to be based upon a digital one. I mean, it, it's doing it already. And we're just sort of talking about it. Sometimes we're slow to things. Uh, but when we get going, when the private sector and the public sector come together, the explosion of creativity and development activity is amazing. And I think the United States has been a little slow to this, but you know what? Our private sector has been very forward. It's our official sector that's been a little slower to the gate. But now, you know, and I think with the help of the Digital Dollar Project and, and Accenture's great leadership in helping us to fund these pilots, we're going to really start exploring this in a big way. And the type of private actors that are, I think, are going to get involved in our initiative here are going to bring energy, enthusiasm, the ability to, to do large project management and technological innovation. So stay tuned. I think there's some big things coming and never write off the US and the West's ability. I just wanted to ask about the new administration. Has there been any greater impetus because they've come in and made this a priority? Well, I, you know, at the Fed, it's pretty much the same team, right? Jay Powell, Leo Brennard, and, and they go across the political spectrum. In my experience in both private and public sector is no party has a monopoly on technological uh, interest in, in moving technology forward. You know, there are early adopters and late adopters on both sides of the political fence. 
what's really the, the differentiator is generational. As a younger generation comes to the fore, both in the private sector and the public sector, uh, they intuitively understand the power of the internet, the power of the internet to bring change to old analog models. And so I think as, as younger people take their, their place in, whether in this administration, a, a future administration, the understanding of this and the urgency of this is going to increase. We've had a very good dialogue with prior administration, with this administration. There are some that, that get it intuitively. There's some that don't. That's just the nature of public life. But I think the chorus is growing of people that really support the U.S. moving forward. And we've had our work at the Digital Dollar Project really warmly received across the board. And, and uh, we think the future is very exciting for this. It's interesting that you're talking about the standard setting. But if we assume that the power to set standards is not just a matter of values and the moral authority, but also a very pragmatical thing in the modern world, the most powerful player sets the standards. Whether the world wants it or not, digital yuan is just a part of a larger economic expansion by China. It's kind of one of its tools. If China has a power to set their standards, say, in the parts of the world where it is a powerful player enough, where it has enough economic power to make the local governments to do what it wants, how would... Um, just introducing a competing digital currency really impact that process because you deal with the real, you know, with the political realities where you can use digital dollar or digital yuan, but if you're mostly dealing with China, if your political alliances with China, you know, whether it's it's a better technology or worse technology, you're going to use digital yuan. Well, I think look, there will be plenty of closed societies that will find digital yuan suitable because those, some of those same surveillance features can be used by those close society governments. You're asking a bigger question than I think than digital currency, and that is, you know, the future geopolitics. And, you know, China is a rising economy and, and, and say a place that they view to be their rightful place in the future. And I, I won't take that away from them. But um, I think, you know, there's an old saying, you dance with the person that got you there. Privacy has been a key feature of democratic societies. And I think if we stay close to our own values, I think uh, people that aspire to better lives around the world, wherever they may be, um, in closed societies or open societies and developing societies or developed societies, uh, if they have a choice, I think they'll choose payment means where their privacy is respected and protected. And I'll take our chances in an open society with instruments of an open society, as opposed to closed societies uh, and the instruments of closed societies. But are we again that sure that the government, however democratic and liberal, that it will really preserve our privacy and not abuse a tremendous power to get all that financial data that we are going to supply it with, with the CBDCs at large, whether we talk about digital dollar, digital yuan, or, or else. That's why we're a democratic society. Society needs to speak up. It's time for citizens of Western societies to demand that the future development of their sovereign currencies respect their privacy. I think the other thing that we haven't introduced into this conversation yet that is critical and central and directly related to privacy is the close interplay and, and relationship with the innovation around digital identity. I've said this frequently, and 
you know, the whole notion that right now I'm carrying my driver's license about a millimeter from the physical cash from my wallet because of my need to be able to use it in our current physical world context and, and obviously in the digital world. To have effective transactions in the digital world, we need effective digital identity. And so the, the progress around self-managed digital identity, digital wallets, and that whole notion of having a future where I can have a single wallet structure into which I can hold any form of digital currency, I can collect all of the verifiable credentials around my identity, um, and to be able to manage my privacy of what I share with whom, when, and for how long. Again, incredible innovation that allows us to reclaim some of that privacy as we need to. We only have a few minutes left. I just wanted to see uh, how sort of practically is the American population going to come into contact with these projects? I mean, when are they actually going to be using it in Target and in Best Buy, et cetera? Obviously, until there's broad rollout, the average person on Main Street is, uh, you know, is going to have to wait. In terms of the pilot constructs, that's exactly what we're forming you know, through advisor group members and, and, and then an open call for participants in the pilots. We're looking for those partners with whom we can then create those closed ecosystem experiments. This is not going to be something that we can just roll out broadly. We need to have a basis by which we can have a population from which we can test and learn and gain insights and have their active participation. You know, we have to have the ability to get it wrong you know, in a safe manner and learn from that. And if you look at our pilot use cases, they range from commercial bank infrastructure, cross-border payments, capital markets clearing at one end, where it's quite easy to imagine the you know, clearinghouse and banks that would need to get together to test the, the direct exchange of tokenized assets for cash. Just maybe to summarize, uh, gentlemen, for you, is the national level of the problems a CBDC, a digital dollar can solve? is more important, or the global level? Uh, in other words, is it more important than the digital dollar can help the unbanked, which maybe can be helped by other measures, by you know, other policies and so on? Or it's more important as a geopolitical tool of, you know, of, of a global economic power for the US? As you know, and your listeners know, the dollar plays many roles, uh, both domestically and globally. And in our white paper, we reviewed those different roles and talked about the different ways a central bank U.S. digital dollar would operate at those different levels. And our pilot projects, the nine of them that we put forward last September, go across the board from domestic uses to address issues of underbanked populations, both in urban areas, but also in rural areas across the heartland. We also looked at global remittances, where the dollar is one of the key currencies remitted around the world, but then across to the wholesale sector as well, wholesale uses of the dollar and its impact on the dollar as a global reserve currency. So we're not limiting our desire to explore a central bank digital currency to either a domestic role or an international role to a retail role or a wholesale role, we propose to explore all of the above because a choice to go to a digital dollar can't be made simply on a domestic level or an international level as you could with perhaps some other currencies. One has to look at the entire role of the dollar in the domestic and global structure to examine whether a central bank digital currency makes sense for the United States. And in the next few months, in fact, in the next few weeks, uh, the Digital Dollar Project will be announcing uh, the launch of some individual pilots, and maybe there'll be an opportunity to come back on and talk about that. But I think, as you'll see, the breadth and scope of what we propose to do is quite broad across the spectrum. 
Well, thanks very much for coming on, Chris and Dave. And it's going to be fascinating to see CBDCs and the digital dollar when it emerges uh, competing with these other forms of currency, including Bitcoin and, and the other projects that we all uh, are interested in. This is Opinionated. I'm Ben Schiller. Thank you to Danny Nelson. Thank you to Anna Bidakoba. Thank you to Michelle Musso, who produced the show. And particularly thanks to Chris Giancarlo and David Treat from Accenture from uh, the Digital Dollar Foundation. And if you want to check out their white paper, which is very worth reading, it's www.digitaldollarproject.org and check it out there. Thanks very much. And we'll see you next time. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Thanks. You've been listening to Opinionated with Ben Schiller. This episode featured Anna Badakova, Danny Nelson, host Ben Schiller, and guests Chris Giancarlo and David Treat. Today's show has been produced and announced by Michelle Musso. Did you enjoy the show? We would love to hear what you think. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or your preferred service and talk to us directly via email at podcasts at coindesk.com. We are witnessing the greatest paradigm shift in finance in modern history. Join thousands of newsmakers and influencers talking the future of money at Consensus by Coindesk. A live virtual experience of leaders, change makers, virtual reality meetups, keynotes from Ray Dalio, Gary Vaynerchuk, and much more. Get an up-close look at the boom in crypto, the surge of institutional investment in Bitcoin, the NFT mania, the breakneck innovation in decentralized finance, and the coming disruption from central bank digital currencies. Coindesk Reports listeners can visit events.coindesk.com and use the promo code REPORTS to save $25. Join us May 24th through the 27th for Consensus by Coindesk. Register today at events.coindesk.com. We'll see you there.